Hi, thank you so much for joining the Next Chapter podcast by myself, Balasas Khomutomutumi. We've reached season three. For the past three years, since 2020 in August, when we launched this podcast, I decided to talk to creatives and people around the world who would amplify the idea of failure, but also talk about issues through the lens of failure that would actually make certain topics relevant for many of you. My name is Balasas Khomutumudumi. I'm a writer, an entrepreneur, I'm a female founder, I'm a creative maven, and someone that has always been interested in ideas and how people think. This season is going to be quite different from the other seasons. I will be speaking to mostly writers who have come a long way and made an impact in many fields and have become world known. The one thing that I want you to take away from this season is the power of community and the power of positive thinking. We talk about failure from a very different lens this season and I'd like to share with you a conversation I had with one of the best arts writers in the country, if actually not even in the country, in the world, Miss Gwen Ansel. I hope you enjoy the conversation and I apologize for the audio for whatever reason. On that day when I recorded the podcast with her, we had multiple challenges in terms of our connection, but we made it happen. I also was sitting in a restaurant enjoying a beautiful breakfast in Cape Town. And that was a very busy time for me, but I needed to have this conversation because I didn't have any other choice. She's quite a busy woman and always has a story somewhere tucked away in her very beautiful, colorful life. So enjoy the conversation and please don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Twitter. And my handle is at T-Y-A-T-Y-I. You can always drop me an email at balisa at simatsatsalibrary.africa. This season, we're trying to make sure that you understand failure from a very different vantage point. We speak to writers, authors, creative directors, curators who are going to amplify the story, the stories and the many stories that we can share about failure. Thank you for your support and for everything that you have done to make sure that this podcast reaches the many shores that it that it has reached. Enjoy. Good day, how are you? Okay, how's the sound? It's really good, thank you. No, um, my Mac has much better uh, microphone than my phone does. That's why I'd rather do it this way. No problem, it's it's all good. I, I'm sitting uh, here, I've been waiting for you. It's not a problem. Thank you for your time. No, no, that's no problem. I kind of kept as much time as I could free, so that's okay. 
Thank you so much, Gwen. Um, we're gonna just have a conversation. We, I'll edit it. Um, I'll edit it at the end um, of our conversation. So just feel free to speak your mind, and um, and I'll send you the final version when I'm done. That's fine. Awesome. Please tell us who you are, where you grew up, and how did you get to be one of the foremost unprecedented arts writers of our time? Um, the flattery, the praise is completely unwarranted. There are lots of good arts writers around. I've been around longer than a lot of other people, and maybe to some extent that means my name is known, because I'm older than a number of other people. Um, who I am is Gwen Ansel. I'm an arts writer. I'm a media consultant. I'm a writing teacher. Um, all kinds of things, basically. Um, I was born in the UK. Uh, what made me what I am today, I think I have to say, is the fact that I was born in the UK in an incredibly fortunate time when all my education right up to the end of first degree was free. I would not be who I am if that was not the case. And I think that is something that it's a point that's really worth making is that free education actually increases social mobility and opens opportunities that many people otherwise would not have. My father was a manual worker. He was a worker on a line in an engineering factory. My mother was a hairdresser and a worker in garment factory. If it hadn't been for free education, I wouldn't be who I am today. That's incredible. Um, I like the fact that our conversation starts with free education because, as you know, South Africa has no free education and it's one of the major challenges we have in the country. What is your perspective on our education at the moment since you're a teacher and you have been teaching for quite some time? Okay, I teach in the higher education sector, which is relatively privileged. I have friends who teach in the school sector, which I know is nothing like as privileged. And my impressions, first of all, yes, everything costs money. Even if you go to a state school, if you want things like drama lessons, art lessons, music lessons, you usually have to pay for those. Uniforms cost money, extra books cost money. During the period of COVID, it was impossible for many kids in low-income areas to actually access education because they didn't have electricity and online access. And I think all of that is an absolute scandal. And I also, well, at the school level, the issue that so much of South African education is narrow and depends on rote learning, I think is a real problem for the 21st century. Yeah, I think I agree with you on, in terms of our education system failing, failing our young people, specifically those that don't necessarily have access to scholarships or bursaries or even um, even good education, supposedly good education. Um, I'm a firm believer in, in our mother tongue education and we've slowly sort of deviated from that, that idea when 1994 came into play. 
you are English, you are from an English background and you've been living in South Africa and have been observing and writing about jazz for quite some time and most of our jazz musicians are actually our pioneers when it comes to mother tongue music, singing in Zulu, Tosa, Sipedi, Soto and all kinds of languages. Who is your favorite jazz musician of all time? Okay, um, that's a game I absolutely refuse to play. Um, there are so many favorites and yes. there are so many people who are going to feel offended if I mention Mr. X rather than Miss Y or Mr. Z. Yes. So yes. I, no, I'm not going to do that. There's so much wonderful music around at the moment. And I have my favorite depends on who was last on the record player which this morning was an old album by the pianist Africa Mkise, but that'll only be the favorite until I put the next one on. So I honestly don't think that that's, that's not a fair question to ask. You'll make me enemies. <laughs> it's not a fair question. And I know as writers, we, we don't choose our favorites. We actually um, choose those that we are busy thinking about or reflecting on or even just wanting to listen to them for enjoyment's sake. And I know that you have often been a dissident voice in our arts community. What makes you so prolific in terms of that kind of voice? Was it an intentional thing when you started writing about jazz and art in general? I think but after a while, when you've been writing, and this is writing in any context, you come to realize that readers or listeners are not stupid. And that mm. your writing does not come from a place of sincerity. They will detect that very easily. And I, so I'm not deliberately a dissident voice by any means, but I do try and be honest because I think that's it's one of the things that has lost currency. There's a lot of lack of faith in the media at the moment. There are, are a lot of lies around, particularly on social media. But I think actually most readers, particularly if it's a subject they care about, and most people who read about music care about music, I think they can detect if you're not being honest and sincere. So I try and be honest and sincere. I'm really excited about what you're saying because I am based in Johannesburg and I travel between Bloemfontein, Joburg, Cape Town and if I find myself in, in Durban or I find myself in Port Elizabeth, I'm always wondering what places look like and you've been quite um, influential in, in talking about the old art spaces that we used to have in South Africa. What was it like writing about uh, the Rainbow Jazz Club at the time and some of the art spaces that we had, Kippies being one of them, and the impact that COVID has had on these art spaces? Okay, there are a number of issues wrapped up in that. My experience primarily has been in Joburg, to an extent in Cape Town. I hardly know the Durban scene at all. Um, you would need to talk to one of the people who was much more closely involved with that. As somebody like the photographer Raf Smyatt would be able to yeah. give you a very good picture of what the rainbow was like. But yes, Kippies, um, 
always an unfortunate place because of how it came into being as being architecturally modeled on a public toilet which mm. I always felt and also didn't have great sound although the various managers there did try I think far more influential for me were some spaces in Joburg that didn't get that much publicity at that time now long gone one of them being soft town um and the other being the jungle inn in hillbrook and certainly when i arrived in joburg in the 90s those were the really interesting places because they were somewhat less structured kippies being associated with the market theater was always a highly structured space um anything could happen at the jungle inn including brenda fassie walking in and trying to sing along with a jazz gig and actually doing it very well i mean i don't mean trying in the sense that she couldn't do it but just mm. inserting herself into the stage where she had not in fact been billed so i think there were and that's one era and then that era came to an end uh, as neglect of the inner city made places like that less and less hospitable for audiences and i you know I, I, a lot of people actually talk about the reasons for this but a great deal of it was just absolute straight neglect on the part of the city authorities and on the part of building landlords who just allowed their buildings to fall into disrepair and then you got a new wave of places coming up like the baseline and that was an amazing place i mean the old baseline not the identity of the baseline as it is now which is as a set of pop-up gigs in various venues and festival locations but the old baseline in melville was a fabulous place it was small enough to be anarchic without being chaotic again i think one of the great things about a jazz club is that anything should be able to happen there musically and that was certainly true at the baseline the baseline was never as rosy as some reminiscences of it have made out there was i can remember quite consistently racism on the streets in melville when people were hanging around outside in an interval there would be a person walking past saying this is where they have their music so you know the baseline wasn't paradise but in terms of what um Brad and Page did and in terms of the number of bands and acts and original compositions that started there i think the baseline deserves enormous kudos and then you had another wave of places like the orbit and then you had covid and everything died and the places that kept going kept going either by doing streaming which is a whole other story on its own or simply the venue died and more to the point many many musicians were driven into complete desperation and disillusionment people were selling instruments to pay household bills i don't think officially there has ever been enough recognition of quite how awful the lockdown period was for people who make their money from live music i think you know everybody is owed more far more credit to, for the fact that now and we now have like a fourth generation of clubs coming up that things are coming back the fact that people had the courage and the perseverance and made the financial sacrifices to hang on to their instruments and are now coming back 
I think is a, an enormous, almost a miracle. And I think nobody at any official level is giving the music community adequate credit for sustaining through lockdown and coming back now with very, very little support, whatever fairy stories are told about grant programs. I'm really, really struck by what you're saying because in creative businesses, we all know how, how creatives have struggled during COVID times, but you talk about all these different spaces that emerged during the during the the early 2000s well 90s going all up to the 2015 16 17 particularly the orbit and i'm wondering the the how much of the the cultural sector has supported these spaces and what i mean by the cultural sector i mean government agencies and all of that how they've supported these cultural spaces or has it been the patrons that used to attend these cultural spaces that kept the spaces going? I think largely it was the patrons who kept them going. I think there has always been a lack of understanding from government that the gig economy is not like running an oil company. Oh. It actually happens, the work happens periodically, um, formations come together for a creative purpose and then dissolve again. And this is not a weakness, this is simply how the sector is. It's how the sector is worldwide, not just here. And it's a source of its flexibility and its creativity. But I think there's been very, very limited understanding from the authorities about that. I think there have been a number of donor agencies who've actually understood this far better. And I think we have to talk, for example, about the Scandinavian countries and particularly the Norwegians and their support over several, many years of Concerts SA. I think we have to talk about the Swiss and Pro Helvetia and the way that funding for tours and for creative projects has come out of there. I think a number of the donor organizations, and there are others, I am mentioning those two because they came to mind, but there are others who understand more the project-based nature of this work and the fact that it's not, you know, you don't go into a factory in the morning and sign on and get a wage at the end of the month. Everything is made afresh every time as a new creative project emerges. And I think that lack of understanding and that obsession with fixed infrastructure and standardized processes, even assuming goodwill is there, and I was reading the other day a speech delivered over Radio Freedom by the late okay. comrade Edouard Tambo during the liberation struggle, where an appreciation for how, just how important artistic creativity was, was actually oh. coming across so strongly. And the late Edouard was talking about not just music as a vehicle for pro protest, not just the instrumental side of it, but music as a way of illuminating the joy of human life among those involved in struggle. So that understanding was there. And somewhere along the way, it may have got lost. But I think even if the understanding of that remained, there was no understanding of the structures and processes that make music happen. And I think we're still living with that. 
I think you're right. I think we're still living with the remnants of our past more and more, and we're still living with the 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 kinds of the kinds of failures that we're experiencing now. The collapse of the of the arts, right? You you you've you've seen that COVID actually opened up many many issues that have been building up over time. I want to turn to your experience as an arts journalist. What is the quality of arts journalism in the country, and do you see many voices emerge coming? Well, emerging from uh, uh, that space, who are speaking to, who are speaking back to power, or speaking truth to power. I think I'll start with the second half of that rather than the first half, because there are many, many great arts writers still around. I mean, if I just tick off on fingers, Atia Khan, Percy Mabandu, Percy Zvomuya, Lloyd Gedje, I could go on. There are lots and lots of good arts journalists. In terms of the state of arts journalism, it has almost died because the platforms have died. And I think that is a problem that we are also not considering enough. Every publication, even the ones that used to host long form writing, have shifted towards a space where arts journalism is mushed in with lifestyle and showbiz and news about the stars. And I am not saying that lifestyle and showbiz should not appear in our publications or on our platforms. They are legitimate, but they're not famous arts journalism and they're not a substitute for arts journalism. And what has happened is arts journalism has been squeezed out. It's becoming harder and harder for publications to survive on any platform. And that relates to advertising revenue, to other kinds of costs. I won't go into all of that now. But the fact that there's almost no South African arts journalism happening, except online, and what's happening online is only, again, accessible to the people who have a reliable electricity supply, who can afford data, yada, yada, yada. So it's becoming more and more exclusionary. It is, and it's becoming more and more, um, it's become more about the business of it and not the kind of love of it and documenting the artists themselves. I think also the media companies also play into the industry and create um, that sort of um, relationship with the reader to to kind of alienate maybe the the artist from actually knowing more about the audience members and the audience members knowing more about the artist as well or the art itself or the art of of uh, creating and I try to with this with this podcast I try to actually give people a, a different perspective on the journeys of creatives and also the kinds of challenges that they face on a daily basis when they go into the art field what have been some of your challenges uh, Gwen when it comes to to your practice as an art journalist well the first challenge, and I was saying this a long time ago when we encountered one another in Cape Town, the first challenge is actually making money out of being an arts journalist, and you can't. You've got to have a plan B. So one of my struggles is always balancing the fact that my revenue comes from teaching and consultancy and research, not from writing about the arts. It's never been my main source of revenue. 
and it mm. is increasingly now less any kind of source of revenue because since mm. arbitrary closure of new frame i don't have a platform so i write on my blog and that doesn't pay me a cent so that's a struggle but i think the other struggle yes when one is actually working with editors editors don't take the arts as seriously as they take other kinds of news so you become news if you are a star now in my book anybody who makes a living creating original music is a star but that's not what's meant by it in terms of the media the media mean if you win an award if you go to america whatever you become a star otherwise you're not of any interest and the other thing that editors are largely not interested in is the most important question you can ever ask a creative artist which is how in other words process matters we need to know what goes into yeah. writing a song designing a show painting a picture and editors tend not to be interested in that and i have worked with some really good editors who were interested in it but they were the exception rather than the rule i think you're right i think process documenting process is very important in this day and age because we have a, a flurry of people interested in the arts but not knowing how the arts is operated or is um is created basically and the business of it has been quite uh, inundated with just the end result and not the process um yes. i really just as a last question i just want to find out from you what's next are we going to have a gwen ansel book that documents all your writing or even some of the things that you've done that have been interesting look what's next depends on what what opportunities appear on the horizon i don't tend to plan in that structured way what i hope will be next but we are still working on the funds for that is a project that i have not written but that i am editing which is the long delayed biography of the late Jonas Mosegwangwa and that it, it's an exceedingly important project to get out um but publishing costs money and raising that money is where we are now we have a manuscript it was written by a scholar called Sam Shakong we have been working on it since it's required a huge amount of research because it was such a big life and i'm hoping that what's next is the fruition of that editing project at some point next year before that i have a number of pieces in the second volume of lance nowas um book on our uh, um cultural struggle culture and the history of the struggle which i believe is also due to appear at some point next year um beyond that i still write when people offer me gigs i have written for harry i have occasionally written for the mail and guardian um my main platform was new frame and new frame was arbitrarily closed down because it wasn't making enough money i believe and that's where we are now i i'm really sad i was really sad about new frame um it closing down and i think everybody that worked on the platform really did a stellar job and thank you for all the work that you've done so far for Asquen you are 
an incredible, incredible writer, an incredible research master teacher. And I'm really privileged to have spoken to you today. Well, thank you for thinking of me, Palesa. As I say, there are lots of me's out there. What I worry about is that the younger generation are just not getting the platforms to express themselves in the way that I was for, you know, writing in this country in the 90s and the early 2000s. I was really fortunate to have those platforms and most of them have now disappeared. So I think there are plenty of Gwenansels out there, but I worry about the fact that they are probably not getting the platforms to show what they can do. Yeah, I totally agree. And I hope that one day when one of them listens to this, they're able to get exactly what you're saying about the plight of arts writing and the the idea of documenting our stories. I really, really appreciate your time and good luck with everything that you're doing. Thank you, Pelosa. Thanks for inviting me. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Have a good day. Okay, bye. Thank you for joining us for the first episode of Season 3. I hope you enjoyed all the gems that Gwen has dropped and also taken in a lot more information around free education, jazz, and the power of art writing in South Africa. This episode is dedicated to one of the best people I've known in my life, and his name was Loazi Zoro Klaba. Loazi was a photographer based in Durban, KZN, and he introduced me to the music of Mam Busimhlongo. If anybody knows U Busimhlongo, she is a creative woman of real talent. She was one of the best we ever had in South Africa, and her music still lives on till today. This episode was not sponsored by anyone, but has been brought to you by myself, Alessas Khomsumutumi. And in this episode, we delve into the many idiosyncrasies and intricacies of jazz writing in South Africa and the importance of our political struggle as an art community. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, please drop me an email and let me know what other topics you'd like me to explore. With regards to failure, please don't forget it's about that. It's about making sure that we speak to the relevant people that look at failure from a very different vantage point. I cannot stress the importance of our time in this time to speak about the many ways in which we can solve problems by using this concept of failure. I'm a firm believer that we can truly do something if we really put our minds to it. I have a younger brother and I always tell him, whatever you want to do, do it with everything you've got. You are the future. You are the kind of people we need for the world to be a better place. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, I'll see you in the next chapter.